that at the same time. This is the second last of this series. Okay, I have been preaching, as I've mentioned, on the minor prophets, calling it, for want of a better name, majoring on the minors. And so we come to the second last, the book of Zechariah. The final one will be the book of Zephaniah. This is the book of Zechariah. Please turn in it in your Bibles. The Zechariah is one of the longest of the minor prophets. He's one of the major minors, whatever. Um, so we will not be able to go really, really deeply in depth here. Okay, 12 chapters. I'm not going to do that to you. So we will be looking at the major points that is made by the prophet Zechariah and understand what his message was for then and what his message is for now. Before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask you now you might open our eyes, open our hearts. Teach us, Lord, the wondrous things that you have in your word that we might better know, appreciate, and love thee. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Zechariah. Now, if you'll notice in your Bible, Zechariah comes immediately after Haggai. Right? See there? That makes a lot of sense because they prophesied at the same time. If you have a look, Zechariah 1.1, in the eighth month of the second year of Darius. Okay? Eighth month, second year of Darius. Look up forward back to or forward to Haggai. It comes, it reads in the first chapter, first verse, in the second year of Darius at the king, in the sixth month. So two months after Haggai prophet was preaching, Zechariah started. Okay? They're on at the same time. So you would go down to the temple and it might be a case of Who's preaching today? Haggai or Zechariah? But there's something else that's interesting about this guy, and we'll we'll get we'll have a look at his background. He is a priest. Okay, he is uh, he's the son of Be uh, Berechiah, the son of Ido the prophet. Now Zechariah is mentioned three times outside his own book. Twice he's mentioned in Ezra and once in Nehemiah. It's interesting that in Ezra, he's referred to as the son of uh, Ido. But here he's the grandson of Ido. Now, first of all, that was a common enough thing in, in Middle Eastern culture. You know, you the son of, it could they could be referring to your dad, your granddad, your great-granddad. But the other interesting thing is very, very little is known, mentioned and recorded about his dad, Berechiah. And it is suggested and is quite a logical thought that his father may have died early. And that's why, and he was in fact brought up by his grandfather. And that's why he's referred to as the son of Ido. That makes sense. But we know he was a priest. Um, 
And the other thing we know about him is he was young. Young. Uh, if you check in, in uh, chapter 2, verse 4, it says, uh, And said unto him, Run and speak to this young man. Now, young man's, you know, it's a, sometimes, well, like I say, look, you're all young to me because at my age, everybody's young. But we're not talking about that young. We're talking about this guy was a youth, a young guy. We're talking probably teenager when he started doing this prophetic work. A teenager. With the exception of Samuel, uh, who was, you know, uh, used of God at a very young age, uh, Zechariah may be one of the youngest of the prophets. He also prophesied for a, a fair length of time, so he had a long um, and a ministry. He's a priest, uh, he's a prophet, and it's interesting, you know, Haggai was all about the temple, build the temple. That was his, he had a, he had sort of a one-trick pony, you know. You, if, if, if he knew Haggai was preaching, it was going to be about get the temple built. Zechariah, a lot more different things he's covering, and he is more concerned with the people, deliverance, and the deliverer. So we'll look now in a little bit more detail. The first section is really quite simple when you look at it. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Iddo, the prophet, saying, The Lord hath been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. What we have in the first six verses of Zechariah is like a summary of almost all the prophets. It's the same thing that all of them have been saying. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, turn back to me and I will turn back to you. But he said, you know, don't be like your fathers. Right? In verse 5, where are your fathers? What happened to them? Well, they died. And so did the former prophets. They died. Don't be like them. Listen. Take note. Hear. And turn back to your God. It's, it's a, a thing that just goes, when you think about it, it's a summary of every single prophet. Return back to the Lord your God. Now you think, why did all these prophets have the same message? Well, there's a story about a, uh, uh, a preacher in America who, who got up and the first time he preached, he preached on the sin of stealing chickens. The second time he preached, he preached on the sin of stealing chickens. The third time he preached, he preached on the sin of stealing chickens. One of the deacons came up to him afterwards and said, you know, preacher, we, we understand what you're getting at here, but 
don't you have anything else to say? Isn't there another message you have for us? And he said, yes, there's another message, but I'll preach that as soon as you people stop stealing my chickens. (laughs) In other words, why was this message so necessary? Because the people hadn't listened. They had not returned to the Lord their God. And so God was still calling to them and saying, return unto me and I will bless you. Now, after that passage, there is then a series of visions that that Zechariah has. The first vision is a vision of a red horseman. In you go, red horseman. Where have I heard that expression before? A rider on a red horse. And in fact, if you look at Revelation chapter 6, you will realize that the rider on the red horse symbolizes war, conflict. But we find here in Zechariah chapter 1 that uh, the verse 10, that the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord hath sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro through the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Hang on. Doesn't the guy on the red horse symbolize war? But here he's saying, the earth is at rest. Yes, this is what he's saying is, there has been a military conquest. There has been the war, but now it's done. It's finished. The fighting is over. And so the man on the, the warrior on the red horse rides to and fro and says, there's, there's nothing to fight. It's all done. It's all finished. The earth is at rest and he asks how long verse 12 will you have not have mercy on jerusalem you see this is a this rider has conquered jerusalem and israel and the the we we know that the children of israel they rebelled not just against civil authority but they rebelled against their god and god sent them punishment by gentile nations this rider has oppressed israel and the problem is that even though israel deserved it i think this conqueror enjoyed his work a little too much And God is not happy. For it says in verse 15, I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased and they helped forward the affliction. Therefore thus saith the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts. And a line shall be stretched forth on Jerusalem. So what he's saying is Israel has been punished. Israel has been disciplined. But those people who did it 
are coming up for judgment themselves. And in fact, we find this happening here in the next passage of the verse, next passage of that chapter. For in verse 18, it says, I lifted up mine eyes and saw, behold, four horns. And the angel that talked with me and said, What be these? And he answered me and said, These are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Now, a horn represents power, a kingdom. Right? If you've ever worked, especially with cattle, a horn represents power and you, you don't get in the way of them. Okay? Now, think back, think back to the, the statue and the story in Daniel of Nebuchadnezzar. Remember how he listed the kingdoms that would be uh, triumphant and re, uh, ruling over Israel? There was the Babylonian kingdom, that was the head of gold. Then there was the chest of silver, Medo-Persia. Then there was the brass kingdom of, of Greece. Then there was the iron kingdom of, of Rome. And then the final kingdom of mixture of iron and clay. That's five. Why does he say here there are? Four. Well, that's because Babylon had already fallen. The empire currently ruling over Israel was the second Medo-Persia. This was the reign of Darius the Mede. The Persian Empire had already conquered Babylon. So the, the first had already gone. This was now the second. So there was four left. But then he has these, they're called in verse 24, carpenters. Now, we think of a carpenter, a chippy, as, as a guy who builds things. This is a carpenter, not as a guy who builds or hammers and nails, but a carpenter like a guy who carves things. Ah, right. He's not a carpenter with a hammer and nail. He's a carpenter with a hammer and chisel. Right. These carpenters chisel away at the four horns it's really when you think about it as he says quite simple the horns are they which have scattered judah but these are come to fray them and to cast out the gentiles so what he's, he's emphasizing here is one of these kingdoms rises up and then another one comes and, and knocks it down and another one rises up and another one comes and knocks it down interestingly uh most of the time they, these kingdoms were succeeded by another one but not always right i mean okay you think uh babylon was conquered by the uh the medes and the persians the medes and the persians were conquered by greece but hang on, what happened to the Greek Empire? It wasn't conquered by Rome. It just fell apart and, and just collapsed all by itself. So we're, with these horns, these powerful empires, they're disappearing. And you, yeah, okay, right. Well, I'm, I'm getting a picture here. God's been displeased with Israel. God has brought these Gentile nations and he's, disciplining Israel 
But those Gentile nations in their own turn are going to be displaced, removed, taken away. Okay. In chapter 2, we have a reminder here because there's a vision of a man with a measuring line and he's told that in two, chapter 2 verse 2 whither goest thou and he said to measure Jerusalem to see what is the breadth thereof and what is the length thereof he's going to measure it he's going to check how big it is why? because Jerusalem it says in verse 3 shall be inhabited as to as Towns without walls for the multitude of men and cattle. It says Jerusalem, it's going to be inhabited and it's going to be so big it's going to overflow its walls. That's why we're measuring it. Because God himself, it says in verse 5, For I, saith the Lord, will be unto her a wall of fire around about it and will be the glory in the midst of her. Hey, promise that in the future, Jerusalem won't need even walls because God will be a wall of fire about her. Why? Verse 8. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, after the glory hath he sent me unto the nations which spoiled thee. For he that toucheth you, toucheth the apple of his eye. Think about that. The apple of his eye. Israel is the apple of the eye of God. Wow. I mean, do you have somebody who's the apple of your eye? Most people do. It might be a little baby. It might be a particular man or a particular woman. But someone who's special, someone who's precious to you. Do you know what it's like if someone touches them? It's like someone stuck a finger in your eye. You're not happy about it. To persecute the nation of Israel and the Jewish people is to poke your eye in God, or poke your finger in God's eye. He does not like it. He will deal with it. And it runs all the way back to that promise made to Abraham that I will bless them that bless thee and I will curse them that curse thee. You know, there is, there is a guaranteed way to destroy a nation. Guaranteed way. And that is for it to persecute the Jewish people. It will be destroyed. Nothing surer. Any nation that gives protection and deliverance to the Jewish people will be blessed and any nation that attempts to destroy and persecute them is doomed. Uh, pity a few countries on earth haven't figured this one out yet, but they will. Now, there is one other interesting little piece here for you. Zechariah 2.12 Zechariah 2.12, you might think, okay, what's, what's so special about this? And the Lord shall inherit Judah his portion in the holy land and shall choose Jerusalem again. Yeah, okay. Yeah, so 
Do you know that is the only place in the entire Bible where the nation of Israel is called the Holy Land? Only spot. That's it. It's only called the Holy Land once. But then that's fair enough because God only has to say something once to, to be important and significant. But there you go. How many times is Israel called the Holy Land in Scripture? Only once in the book of Zechariah. So we now come to the next series of visions. And they are the visions of, of, Zachar of Joshua the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor. There is much to do in the, to look into in this, but we really don't have time. So I want to just get you a couple of important points here. There is also another character, another thing introduced in, in Zechariah chapter 3. Because in Zechariah 3.8, we have here now, O Joshua the high priest, thou and thy fellows that sit before thee, for they are men wondered at. For behold, I will bring forth my servant, the branch. Have a look there. It's all in capitals. It's a title. It's not a description. It's a title. The branch. We're also told in verse 12 of, of uh, chapter 6 that the branch will build the temple. The branch in Zechariah 6.12. Right. Thus speak unto him, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold the man whose name is the branch... And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Okay. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord, and he shall bear the glory, and shall sit and rule upon his throne. And he shall be a priest upon his throne. The council of peace shall be between them both. Oh, okay. So we've got this one who is called the branch. In, Jer in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse uh, 5, he is called the righteous branch. That's Jeremiah 23, if you want to check it out. He's called the righteous branch. Who is this? This is the Messiah. The, the people of, of uh, Zechariah's day, they understood clearly who was he talking about, he's talking about the Deliverer, the Messiah, the Branch. Now, there's a little problem here. You see, in these chapters 3 and 4, he talks about Joshua the High Priest and also mentions Zerubbabel the Governor. You see, Joshua, he's a priest. That's religious authority. Um, Zerubbabel, the governor, he's civil authority. We think of a branch dividing things. No, this is a branch that 
joins things. For if you look back where we had it before in in, uh, Zechariah chapter 6, verse 12, we find that he will build the temple and that he will rule upon his throne. Hang on. Priests don't rule. Priests serve. Kings don't work in temples. They rule in palaces. So why is there a throne in the temple and he's ruling there if he's a priest? If he was a king, shouldn't he be ruling in a palace? And if he's if he's a priest, shouldn't he be serving in a temple? How are these things joined together? Well, that is simply a, a, one of the things that we only understand now about the Lord Jesus Christ is that, yes, he is the king. He rules. But because he is of the line of Judah and not of the line of Levi or of Aaron, He does not serve as a priest like Aaron did, but he serves as a priest like Melchizedek did, who was not of the tribe of Aaron. In fact, he wasn't even Jewish. So the branch joins together the priesthood and the kingdom and rules in his temple. So, We have a picture being drawn here. We've started with that call to the nation to repent. Now we've got the picture of Israel being oppressed, Israel being at peace, but God judging those who oppress her. Now we have the joining of the civil and religious uh, lines of authority in the branch. In verse, in chapter 5, and we're going back, back to chapter 5, more visions, lots of visions in Zechariah, okay? He sees a flying roll. Flying scroll, really. And it's 20 cubits uh, by 10 cubits. Anyone quickly figure out how how big that is? That's about um, 15 by... No, 20 cubits is about 10 meters. Uh, 10 by 20. Sorry, 10 by 5. 10 by 5 meters. Scroll. Big scroll, 10 by 5 meters. And it's written with the curses in the law on people who do what? Swear falsely and steal. God's God's cursing all these people who swear falsely and steal. Now, it's interesting. You go to any society in the world, any society in the world, there are two things I can guarantee you that they will say, you you shouldn't do. 
These are universal moral precepts. You don't lie and you don't steal. And God is cursing these people because they are going against not just his law, but their own conscience. You can't say, oh, this is a different culture. No, every culture says you don't lie and you don't steal. But they have gone against it. And God has said, I'm judging this. Then there's this vision. It's a woman within a, like a, hot and it gets sealed with lead and carried away and yeah you can you can have a look at that for yourself but i'll tell you the put one of the important interesting bits look right down the the end of chapter five where were they taking evil okay where were these two creatures taking the evil that we've been put in the pot and it says verse 11 and he said unto me to build it in a house in the land of Shinar and it shall be established and set there on its own base Shinar where have you heard that name before Shinar is mentioned eight times in scripture in Daniel, sorry, uh, in, in uh, eight times in scripture, it was in Genesis 10, 10, it's the dwelling place of Nimrod. In Genesis 11, 2, it is the place where the Tower of Babel was built. In Genesis 14, 1, it's one of the kings that fought against Abraham. In Joshua chapter 7, verse 21, when Achan is tempted by the luxury and the precious things that were in Jericho, it says it was a Babylonian garment, literally a Shinar style garment. Oh. It was the garment from Shinar that tempted Achan. In Daniel, it was where the vessels of the temple were carried. Where is it? In the land of Babylon. But hang on. Didn't I just say that Babylon had fallen, been conquered by the Medes and Persians? Yeah. This is Babylon rebuilt. For the evil that's being talked about in Zechariah chapter 15, it has a length and a breadth and it hasn't been spread out like a scroll, but it also has a place. And the place is Babylon. Mm. Evil is coming up. Now in Zechariah, there's almost like there's a break, you know? Everything's put on hold, but not quite. Stick with me. You will see something building here. In chapter 7 and chapter 8, we have these two guys come to talk to uh, Zechariah. 
Um, verse 1, And it came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius that the word of the Lord came to Zechariah in the fourth day of the ninth month, even in Chislu, when they had sent to the house of God Sherezah and Regulamah, these two men, with their men, to pray. And what had they come to, to find out? They had come to ask Zechariah a question. Right. They had come to speak, in verse 3, to speak unto the priests which were in the house of the Lord of hosts, to the prophets, saying, Should I weep in the fifth month, separating myself as I have done these many years? Now these people were saying, we've, we've regularly held a fast in the fifth month. Actually, it held one in the seventh month as well. Should we keep doing it? Now you might think, well, that's a reasonable question to ask. But why is it stuck in the middle of Zechariah? As I said, you know, bear with me. We will see. Zechariah says to these people, well, yeah, you fasted. Not to me. Verse 6, when you did eat, when you did drink, when you did ye not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves. In other words, these fasts weren't for God. I want to show off how holy they were. Oh. He says, Zachariah says to them, what, what did God want you to do? Fast and mourn and show off how holy you were? No. <coughs> Verse 8, the word of the Lord came unto Zechariah, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment and show mercy and compassion every man to his brother, and oppress not the widow nor the fatherless, the stranger nor the poor, and let none of you imagine evil against his brother in your heart. But they refused to hearken. What are we seeing here? We're seeing the rise of a self-important, self-inflating uh, religious group of people. These are people who are coming to the prophet and they're saying, I, I must be more holy than him because I fast on two months and he only fasts on one. Have you ever heard of these sorts of people before? What in fact we're seeing here during this time of the Babylonian captivity is the rise of the people who will eventually become the Pharisees. They're starting to show up here saying, I want to be more holy and I'm going to prove I'm more holy because my hat's got a wider brim than his has. I'm more holy than you because when I give away some money to the poor, I make sure everybody knows it so I blow a little trumpet so they can tell that I'm holy and I'm more holy than you. Hmm. They did not do it to God. They did it to themselves. These people would eventually 
They were inwardly, they were outwardly so pious, but inwardly so spiritually destitute. And God says, what did I want you to do? I wanted you to show justice and mercy. And you didn't do it. Instead, you were more concerned with how good you looked and how nice your robes were and how everybody looked and said, oh, he must be holy. Look how wide his hat is. And as they were told, they honoured God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. You know, I've, some people said to me that we've talked, I've talked to people about the rise and fall of various religious groups. You know how the one particular religious group will rise and then disappear and now they hardly hear of them and things like that. But let me tell you, the sect of the Pharisees is alive and well and living in our culture today. They're still around showing off how holy they are and how important they are by the things they do to impress people. And let me tell you, it doesn't really matter whether they wear a Christian outfit or whether they wear saffron robes and go around chanting at people. They're still basically just showing off how holy they are to impress the people who are around them. And it doesn't impress God. So what have we seen so far? We have seen that God is jealous for Israel. His people, even while he disciplines them. Two, we've seen that God's righteous service, the branch, is prophesied to come. Three, we have seen that evil increases and it has a name and it has a place. Four, we have seen that outward religion and inward corruption increases. You see, Zechariah is more than just a collection of visions. It is more than just individual little cases. I put it to you that Zechariah is showing the panorama of Jewish history. Because the next thing we find is Zechariah chapter 9. Zechariah chapter 9, and if you know your Bible, you will realize that Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, was fulfilled in Matthew chapter 21, verse 4. Let's have a look at Matthew chapter 21, verse 5. And it says, well, let's start at verse 1 there. And when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem and were come to Bethphage in the Mount of Olives, then sent Jesus two disciples, saying unto them, Go into the village against, over against you, and straightway you shall find an ass tied and a colt with her, Loose them and bring them unto me. And if any man say aught unto you, you shall say, The Lord hath need of them, and straightway he will send them. This was done, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, Tell ye the daughter of Zion, Behold, thy king cometh unto thee, meek and sitting upon an ass, and a colt, the foal of an ass. Yes, 
Matthew 21.5 is the fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9. Now, what does it mean to come riding on an ass? Did that have any importance? Did that have any symbolism? Oh, it did. It did. You see, what you rode on told people what you were intending to do. A man who came riding a mule or a donkey was coming in peace. A person who came riding a war horse was coming to fight. So did the people know what this meant? Oh yeah, I'm certain they did. Let me tell you something interesting about riding into Jerusalem. In 1912, 1912, a man rode into Jerusalem on a white horse and ordered that not only should the gates be opened, but the gates should be widened so that he could come in. 1912. His name? Kaiser Wilhelm of Germany. Do you think that the peoples there knew that war was coming? Oh, yes, they did. They knew. From what this man did, they knew there was a war coming. But in 1917, another man came to Jerusalem. His name was General Allenby. When General Allenby arrived at Jerusalem, and they were ready to have the big parade after he'd thrown the Turks out, he got off his horse and he walked through the eastern gate leading his horse and said I will not this, this gets me every time he said I will not ride through the streets where my saviour carried his cross what did that mean to the people? that peace had come they understood the message that if you come on an ass you are bringing peace you are the, the messenger of peace but if you come riding a horse you are a messenger of war so in Matthew look first of all in Zechariah they knew what Zechariah meant but in Matthew they knew what Jesus meant that he was not coming to fight, but he was coming to bring peace. First of all, he was coming to bring peace with God through his own sacrifice. And he was coming to bring peace between people. The righteous branch was making himself known. In Matthew chapter 21, verse 5, we mentioned the righteous branch, the one who would come. He's making himself known. Now, turn to chapter 11. Turn to chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 12. And I said unto them, If ye think good, give me my price, and if not, forbear. So they weighed for my price 30 
pieces of silver. And the Lord said unto me, Cast it to the potter, a godly, a goodly price that I was prized out of them. And I took the thirty pieces of silver and cast them to the potter in the house of the Lord. This is what they thought the righteous branch was worth. The one who came to bring peace, they were sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a dead slave. For 30 pieces of silver was the amount of compensation you had to pay an owner of a slave if you accidentally killed him. So let's say you, uh, it was like almost like workers' comp. You know, you hire a slave, you kill him accidentally. Well, what do you give the owner? 30 pieces of silver. It's the price of a dead slave. And Zechariah says, the righteous branch comes. The righteous branch comes in peace. The righteous branch comes offering salvation and you value it at 30 pieces of silver. And then they are thrown to the potter in the house of the Lord. So we see, can you see now how the history of Israel is being portrayed in the book of Zechariah. We have, first of all, we have the principle that God is jealous for Israel, that God, righteous servant, the branch is coming, that evil increases, that it has a name and a place, that outward religiousness and inward corruption increases, that the righteous branch offers himself as the prince of peace and is valued at 30 pieces of silver. What happens next? Zechariah chapter 12. Yeah, next chapter. Zechariah chapter 12. We find that Israel, that Jerusalem is being besieged. In verse 2, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling unto all the people around about. When they shall be in the siege both against Jeru Judah and against Jerusalem. We find Jerusalem is being besieged here. Okay? Huge army around it. What's going to happen? Verse 4. In that day, saith the Lord, I will smite every horse with astonishment and his rider with madness. And I will open mine eyes upon the house of Judah and will smite every horse of the people with blindness. Mm. So God will come and defend Jerusalem. But verse 10, this is where it gets really interesting. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications and they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and they shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. He's saying the next thing that's going to happen with Israel is it's going to be besieged 
and it's going to be in desperate straits and God will defend it. And more than that, he will pour out upon the Jewish people the spirit of grace and of supplication and they shall mourn for one whom they have pierced. Now, there's a couple of interesting things to I want you to look at here. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord for Israel, saith the Lord. Okay, who's speaking? God is. Fair enough. Chapter 1, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. God is speaking. Chapter 2. Behold, I will make Jerusalem a cup of trembling. Who's speaking? God is. Yeah. Verse 9. In that day it comes to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Okay. Who's speaking? God is. Right? Not this isn't. You know, guys, this, as I say, this to my, as I say to my Bible study class classes, you know, this is not rocket surgery here. This this is fairly easy to follow. So in verse 10 at the start, when it says, and I will pour upon the house of David, who's speaking? God is. And then when it says, they shall look on me whom they have pierced. Who's speaking? God is. When was God pierced? On Calvary. God is speaking. God was pierced. And God is coming to redeem his people. For we find here that what's spoken of in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verse 26. And so all Israel shall be saved. All of them. All Israel. Why? Why will they all be saved at once, at a moment, in an instant? Because they will look and see whom they have pierced. And they will mourn. And the spirit of grace and of supplication will be poured out on them. And every single Jewish people, person, at once, in a moment, in an instant, will be saved. Why? Because they will look upon God whom they have pierced and shall mourn. And the spirit will be poured out upon them. And it will be glorious. It will be wonderful. It will be unbelievable. And it will happen. So. We find. In. Zechariah 13. Verse 9. That he says, I will bring the third part through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and will try them as gold is tried. And they shall call upon my name and I will hear them. I will say, this is my people. And they shall say, the Lord is my God. And that is all of them. 
the third of Israel that has survived to that point will be saved. All of them. And it's great. But yet there's one more thing happening. If you think, okay, you know, we have seen the history of Israel coming through the book of Zechariah. And that, this, the last bit, that's what we, were, we got the guy to read this morning, okay? That's what we got. Because I want you to look in verse 3 of chapter 14 of the last chapter of Zechariah. Then shall the Lord go forth and fight against those nations as when he fought in the day of battle. Yeah, we've got that bit. Yeah. And his feet shall stand on that day on the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. Now I've been there. Right? You stand on the Mount of Olives and it's on the east and you look down across the valley of, of uh, the Kidron Valley, and you see Jerusalem. They're, you know, they're not stupid there. They've made this really, really great car park where everybody stops and takes photographs of it because it's the perfect spot. So you go there and you do the appropriate thing. You take the photograph and you look out there and you realize you're standing on the Mount of Olives. And it says it's going to cleave in the midst toward the east and towards the west. Okay, it's going to cleave east-west. And half of the mountain will go north and half of the mountain will go south. Okay. Anybody ever do uh, ge geology or anything like that when they're at school? Do you want to know where the biggest rift valley in the world is it is appropriately called the great rift valley and it runs from up at the Bikar valley in lebanon right up in lebanon and it runs all the way down through israel through the jordan valley out past the gulf of akaba and runs all into africa into Kenya and finally finishes at Mozambique. It is the greatest rift valley in the world and it runs through, yep, the Mount of Olives. Now, rift valleys, they're not like valleys that are gouged out by glaciers and things or worn out by rivers. Now, rift valleys occur when plates, the continental plates are moving apart. Now don't, don't, Christians, don't be afraid when people talk about tectonic movement and the plates moving apart. Uh, we believe in that. It's just the time scale is, is a little different. All right? Because the, the book of Genesis talks about the time when the continents were divided. Okay? So, the Great Rift Valley is caused by the fact that the, the plate that Africa sits on and the plate that Asia sits on are moving apart and it forms a valley. Okay, that's what's happening. Well, what's happening in Zechariah chapter 14 is it's going to get speeded up. And it's not going to happen 
with in in just a few centimeters a year. Incidentally, you you remember the the uh, really nasty earthquake they had in Syria just recently, right? Because it's on the end of the Great Rift Valley. Earthquakes happen all the way along this plate. This this thing it ends up. Uh, I think one of the volcanoes from it is Kilimanjaro in, in, in Africa. And it's going to split the Mount of Olives. And the, the line will be east-west. And half of the mountain will move north and half of the mountain will move south. But not just that, the south of Jerusalem is going to get lifted up in the same earthquake. All right, it's uh, verse 10, and all the land shall be turned as a plain from Gibeah to Rimon, verse 10 of, of Zechariah chapter 14. Because if you look, when you look down over Jerusalem, you realize it, it's all slopes down from the, mount, from the temple mount. It's all downhill. That's all going to get lifted up so that it's level. It'll be like a plateau. And that's where people will live when the kingdom is set up. Hmm. This is when the branch, the righteous branch, returns. And this time, if you read the book of Revelation and you read carefully, you'll find he's not riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of an ass. He's riding on a horse. And he is coming to make war in righteousness and judgment and to protect his people. Well, when the, uh, when the uh, earthquake happens and the Mount of Olives breaks, artesian water is going to come up. Now, it's funny, you know, uh, when I talk about artesian springs and artesian water to Australians, especially people from the outback, they go, oh yeah, yeah, we understand that. People from from other countries and other continents, they, they don't they haven't been quite attuned to it. But because of what we have in Australia, we're quite uh, familiar with the concept of opening the ground up and water coming out. Uh, and not just coming out, but springing out under pressure. So the water will come out from this broken mound of olives split in half. And the water will flow in two directions. It'll flow, it's, we're told in verse 8, And it shall be in that day that living waters shall go out from Jerusalem, half of them towards the former sea and half of them towards the hinder sea. Okay. See? See the sea? What sea? Okay. Two seas that I mentioned here, the former sea and the hinder sea. And you can figure them out because they work on when you stand at Jerusalem, which way is east. The water will flow towards the Mediterranean Sea. Okay, so there will be a river running from Jerusalem to the Mediterranean. Okay, and the other part of it will flow south to the Dead Sea. And it will fill up 
the Dead Sea, and the Dead Sea will overflow down the back end of it where they currently have salt ponds and evaporations, and it will end up flowing out probably somewhere around the Gulf of Aqaba. And it'll finish up there. And fresh water will flow from Jerusalem permanently, day and night, summer and winter, out towards the Mediterranean and down to the Dead Sea. Eventually, in another passage, we're told they'll catch fish in the Dead Sea. Yeah. The salt will all be washed and flushed out and people will catch fish in there. And you think to yourself, wow, that's pretty fantastic. But we're also told in the last few verses of this chapter that there will be holiness in Israel, holiness in Jerusalem, that even the bells on the horses will be marked holiness to the Lord. Even the pots will be called holiness to God. Holiness will be the great point of Israel at that place. Everything will be holy. Why? Because the holy God will establish his self there. Holiness will flow out like the waters that flo waters flow out from this artesian spring in the middle of the, the Mount of Olives. So will holiness flow out from Jerusalem. So there we have, if you like, in Zechariah, the history of the Jewish people. From the time when God says, come back to me, but they don't. We have the, the time when, when God says, I'm going to have to discipline you. I don't like it and you won't like it, but I have to. When he says, I will, and I will punish the people who do the disciplining. We have the rise of the outward religiosity we have the presentation of the righteous branch coming in peace we have his rejection by the people for 30 pieces of silver and we have his return in glory to conquer and to reclaim Israel Hallelujah. Zechariah there's an awful lot in that guy and there's, there's more look I have only just you know sort of skipped along the top bits there's an awful lot more in there you ever wondered where you fit in in Zechariah hang on where do we fit in Zechariah do we get a mention okay I want you to have a look at the end of chapter 12 sorry the end of chapter 11 and the start of chapter 12 now do you see what is between verse 17 of chapter 11 and verse 1 of chapter 12? A blank space. Yeah, a blank space. That's where we are. We're in, this, we're in that little bit of that big between the end of chapter 11 and the start of chapter 12, that blank space. Why isn't there anything written there? Because it was a mystery. It wasn't known. So there you are. 
in the in that little blank piece of paper between the end of chapter 12 and the start of chapter the end of chapter 11 the start of chapter 12 that's where we are what are you going to write in the blank that little blank spot what are you going to write are you going to write that you sat and did nothing and looked at the world around you or are you going to write that you did what god called you to do are you going to write that you ignored the call that said today if you will hear his voice today is the day of salvation are you going to ignore that or are you going to write that you turned to god when you had the chance there's a little blank spot there in the book of Zechariah for you. What are you going to put in it? Are you going to put in saved by grace? Or are you going to put in depart from me for I never knew you? How will you fill it out? How will you fill it up? We know how God is going to fill up history. It's been revealed to us. It's all there. How are you going to fill up your little bit of story? For we know that history is really his story. We know what his story is now. It's been revealed to us by the prophet Zechariah. But what, are you, what story are you going to write? Where are you in this story? What are you doing? Will you reach out and take the salvation which God offers you or you will ignore it and watch it go past and eventually not even be a footnote in history there's a chance to be part of God's eternal magnificent story before you if you will turn from your sins and reach out to him today if you will hear his voice today for tomorrow History, we know, marches on. And the history of Israel has been written, but you are still writing your history now. Will you write it with the Lord Jesus Christ and repent of your sins? If you need to, you'd come and talk to somebody today and we'll tell you how you can be part of God's eternal story. Thank you. Amen.